so it may not feel like it, but Purim is just around the corner. <laughs> just a few weeks. And so I want to talk for the next few weeks about Purim. About wildness and revolution and rebellion and transformation. And the role that plays in our practice. So as I think we all know in some way, Purim is a story of, of revolution, of transformation. The theme of the holiday is nafokhu, right? We turn everything upside down, we turn everything on its head. It's a topsy-turvy world of hiddenness and of unexpected surprises. And already in the Megillah, of course, we find this throughout, right? Every time, every verse, something changes, something's not as expected. Vashti, the whole story starts out by Vashti refusing the king's authority. Not what, not what is expected in the context. It shakes the kingdom, it shakes the social order, right? All the, all the men who rule the kingdom are worried that, God forbid, women will not listen to their husbands anymore, as they say explicitly in the Megillah, right? <laughs> you worry, what is going to be the terrible consequences of this? Who then comes onto the scene? Hadassah whose name, of course, in the context of Purim, is Esther, already hidden. Right? She's got a Jewish name, Hadassah, but that name is hidden, a name which has to change identities. And she's an orphan, right? Hadassah is an orphan. She's being raised by her uncle, unclear the relationship exactly, Mordechai. So again, this topsy-turvy story, those who are precisely in the lowest position, the widow, the orphan, those who... The Bible tells us we have to protect, the Torah tells us we have to protect, are precisely those who come and take on the, the persona of the Savior. And it just keeps happening, right, throughout the Megillah. Haman is asked who should be honored. He gives his response and how they should be honored, thinking, of course, it's him, and it's Mordechai, right? Bummer Fraumann. A letter goes out to destroy the Jews. A letter goes out to protect the Jews. The city of Shushan is first Nebuchadnezzar, and then it's joyous and glad, right? Precisely parallel verses. Mordechai at the beginning is in sackcloth and ashes, and then later, when he finally is sort of raised to the right hand of the king, he's in the garb of the temple, right? Tchelet v'argaman. The temple which is being desecrated, the kelim, Right? The kelim, which are used in the party at the beginning of the scene of the Megillah, which we read in Echatrop, because they're understood to be the kelim of the Beit HaMikdash, which are taken right to Babylon. Now it's transformed into Mordechai wearing the garb of the temple, the colors of the temple, the colors of restoration. So what's the Megillah trying to tell us? With all these examples, and of course we could give more examples, right? This is the story of the Megillah. The theme of Purim, as I think we know, is Esther, which is Hester, right? It's Hester Panim. It's the hiddenness. And perhaps it's the hidden aspect of ourselves which needs to be revealed. Perhaps on Purim, the hiddenness, the masks, the garments we wear are actually garments of revelation. I want to explore that a little bit. And perhaps the second lesson, which we want to explore here, 
is the lesson of impermanence. Life is always changing. One minute we think we're on top, the next minute we're on the bottom. We think we're on the bottom, the next minute we're on top. We live in a universe of chaos, in a universe of change and transformation, and that's just the way things are. And the lesson of Purim, perhaps, is how we ride that change, how we stay open to that process of transformation. So let's get into this a little bit more particularly. So we have this whole tradition, of course, on Purim of wearing costumes, of wearing masks. And in particular, of course, which many people take the opportunity, we are allowed, at least the Ramah tells us, to cross-dress on Purim, right? You're allowed to cross-dress on Purim. Which is quite a fascinating um, permission, given the fact that in general it's prohibited to wear right big day ish or big day isha. So why? Why are you permitted on Purim to break those boundaries? There's a kind of wildness, right? We experience it on Purim. There's a wildness in the breaking of the boundaries. There's a kind of fierce joy which we're encouraged to enter, which may also be a kind of exposition, an exposing of a part of ourselves which lies hidden, right? Normally, maybe we're supposed to be in our standard gender categories, whatever those are, right? We're supposed to play a certain role. And all of a sudden, we're being given permission to play a different role, to step outside the ways we normally see ourselves, to take on a different persona, to take on a different identity. Maybe there are qualities because of our gender, our identity, our status, wherever we are in society. Gender is just one example that are hidden inside of us, that are less acceptable, less acknowledged. Maybe, these are examples, may or may not be true, stereotypes, right? Maybe if you're a woman, it's touching your anger, right? Maybe that's not acceptable so much in society, and there's a possibility of doing that. Maybe if it's a man, it's touching your emotionality, maybe your sadness, right? Maybe your ability to cry. Maybe that's not so acceptable usually. Maybe it's something else. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's this opportunity to embody some other kind of role and to go beyond the normal boundaries and places where we hold ourselves, where we tighten around ourselves. And the same is true, of course, of the other great tradition on Purim, of getting drunk, right? Why do we drink on Purim? The Gemara says, Right? A person is known in three ways. In his cup, in his drink, right? in his alcohol, in his pocket, in his money, and in his anger. Right? And some say, some say even in his laughter. Right? It's, a, it's a wonderful list. Right? His drink, his money, his anger, and his laughter. It's our desire. It's our aversion. It's our emotion, and it's that which loosens our tongue and lets them all out. In Eruvin it says, Right? Yatsasod. <laughs> we may have experienced that in some ways, which seemed embarrassing or inappropriate perhaps at certain points in our life. But it's this release of exposing ourselves. What happens when we expose ourselves? when we're naked, of not holding back and of the bravery to truly enter life in this way, 
We drink on Purim, perhaps, right? I'm not saying you need to drink, but to reveal who we are, to let down the normal barriers and holdings, to let down the ways we normally keep ourselves inside. I had one friend who told me, I thought this was entirely right, right? He said he hated drinking because he didn't like feeling out of control, right? It's totally reasonable, and I'm not advocating drinking. <laughs> I just think it's an interesting note to notice that fear of being out of control, to not being in control. And sometimes the blessedness of losing control, the blessedness and the liberation of really being willing to let go of control. And you don't need alcohol for that, right? It's about that decision to just at that moment to say, I'm relinquishing control. I don't have to hold on to the reins quite so tight. And this is true not just of sort of sachako, our laughter, but also of kaso, right, our anger, the deepest and darkest and scariest parts of ourselves. Our anger and danger and violence and passion all come out to play a little bit when we are willing to lose control. And that's scary, right? It's scary. But it's also what's wonderful about Purim. The ability to play out a little bit those parts of ourselves which seem unacceptable, which seem unwelcomed. It says in Megillah, wonderful classic story, some of you may know, Amar Rava, the classic statement. A person has to get drunk on Purim until they don't know the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. Right? So drunk you can't see distinction. You can't see difference. Everything is completely out of control. The story follows. Rabba and Rabizera had a Purim meal together. Ibsum. They got drunk. Kam Rabba shachte le Rabizera. Rabba got up and killed Rebbe Zera. Right? That's the story in the Gemara. He gets up, slits his throat. Come Rabba v'shachte le It's quite dramatic. Lamar bai rachamei v'achye. The next day he requested compassion. He paid for him, prayed for him, and he revived him. Right? So he resurrects him. So he kills him the first day. The next day he's not drunk anymore. He resurrects him. Lashana amarle. The next year he said to him, he said to Rabbi Zeri, come on, Mar, come on, mister, come on, buddy. Let's do a Purim Suda together. Let's do a meal together. Amarle, Rabbi Zeri says to him, says, miracles don't happen every hour. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Let's be a little bit careful here. But I think what is amazing about this story, right? This is part of the of what the Gemara is trying to do here is what comes out of Rabba? Rabba, Rabba, one of the great sages. What comes out of Rabba on Purim when he gets really drunk? Murder. Right? Murder comes out. Now, it's put in the literary context of a story well where we know it's all actually okay and everything works out and is able to revive him, etc., etc. That's fine. But I think there's a deep point here, right? A point which they want us to see, which is yes, that's what's supposed to come out of us in some ways on Purim. Not that they actually want us to go murder people, right? We don't really go kill people. But we want to allow that part of ourselves to emerge and be seen. We hide from it so much. It's actually a totally normal human reaction to want to hurt somebody else, right? 
We all have it. You get hurt in some way, there's anger, retaliation, revenge, striking back, self-protection. It's an old, old, old human story. It's why those things are outlawed, right? Laws only exist because people do them, right? Old human story. But we don't want to see it in ourselves, right? God forbid that part of humanity should be part of us. God forbid that I should really have those feelings, that I should be that dark, that dangerous. And it can be true in that sense also of this practice we do of mindfulness. Sometimes, mistakenly, people think that mindfulness is about control, right? It's about sort of quietness, restraint, politeness, right? If I'm mindful, I'm kind of, right? Everything's under control. It's in the box. I'm not having any dramatic emotions inside. God forbid, right? Everything's calm. Everything's peaceful. I read an article once, terrible, I mean, article just in the sense of like so sad, about um, a woman who had practiced in some group, which in my opinion we're not doing mindfulness at all, in a Zen center, um, where she talked about mindfulness as kind of constraint, and she describes this scene, this insane scene, right, where somebody collapses in the meditation hall, and everybody keeps meditating, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's like crazy, right? Crazy. If I like paramedics coming in, like whatever. So like crazy, right? I mean, just crazy. It's like that's not awareness, right? That's total avoidance, right? <laughs> like complete avoidance. Like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening. I'm going to meditate, right? <laughs> right? I mean, just crazy. That's not mindfulness. That's not our practice, right? If this practice in any way, if you feel like at some point it's like, making me lose your vigor or joy or wildness or personality, first of all, stop doing it, <laughs> right? Second of all, you're not doing it right, right. That's not what's supposed to happen. The goal is not to become blank and boxed and held in and everything's perfect. That's not the point, right? The point is exactly the opposite, to invite in the fullness of our experience the scariest, wildest parts of ourselves can come out to play because there's a spaciousness to accept them. Because there's this huge field, and even if it's this monstrous green-eyed dragon, it's okay, right? There's like sky to fly around and there's water, there's all kinds of stuff. There's plenty of space for it to be without you having to breathe fire, right? The dragon can be there without you having to breathe the fire. And so we open to it all. We open to it all, even that murderous rage, right? Even that murderous rage. It's part of me too. It's like a while ago, maybe a few months ago, I read you this um, beautiful poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Called Call Me By My True Names. And I don't know if you've ever seen him or heard him, but you know, I mean, this is a guy who's a pretty peaceful guy, right? And <laughs> a little time, pretty serious. And he talks in that poem about like the pirate who murders and rapes somebody, that's him too, right? That is a part of him too. That is a part of his self, right? So the idea, of course, is not to go around killing people, right? That's not the goal. <laughs> it's not to act on everything that arises in us. But it is to feel it all, to feel it all. 
And when we feel it all, when we open to it all, then we can choose. Then we can act on those parts of ourselves which are skillful, beneficial, healthy for ourselves and others. And that includes our wildness, right? That includes our bravery. That includes our risk-taking, our revelation, our exposure, our surrender, and our trust. Interesting, there's a, there's a classic um, difficulty which arises in practice. One classic difficulty, there are a number of, there's a list of them. One of them is boredom, right? boredom and lethargy. And, um, and I've actually never experienced it. <laughs> which is funny. But I've never experienced boredom when I've practiced. I've experienced lots of other ones, and different people have their different things. But um, for me at least, there's always a lot happening. <laughs> Maybe just what I'm exploring, but like, it's not boring. It's challenging. It's scary. It's all kinds of other things. I might want to run away sometimes, but it's definitely not boring. I just haven't experienced boredom. And I know, of course, people do, and, and very experienced practitioners, it's not like there's no fault in experiencing boredom. But often when we're experiencing boredom, at least I had a, was having a conversation with a teacher of mine who's experienced it a lot, is because actually there's something exciting happening underneath, right? That we don't want to see, right? Exciting doesn't always mean fun, right? That's what's the Confucian, like, curse may be born in interesting times, right? <laughs> It's like, may you have an interesting sit, right? <laughs> That's not always so fun, right? But it's an opportunity to really go through this process of revelation. And I really feel like that's the opportunity of Purim. It's like we put on these masks and we let down our boundaries. It gives us some permission to be somebody else, to actually be somebody else for a moment to be wild, to take risks, to expose our inwardness. And so we expose it all, you know, our scariness, our yuckiness, our danger, our pain, our anger, our sorrow, and our joy, our power, our desire. And we use it as a means of transformation, of nafohu, right? That's what we do, we nafohu, we turn everything over. And it's in this way, as parts of our tradition say, the Kabbalists read it, that Purim is connected to Yom HaKippurim. Right? Because Yom HaKippur is a day which is like Purim. A day which is similar to Purim. Because it's a day like Purim of laying bare your soul. Right? A day of cleansing, of catharsis and renewal. On Purim, like Yom Kippur, we lay bare our hearts and acknowledge and admit to all the darkness in us. On, Purim, we actually, on Yom Kippur, we actually admit it, right? We sort of say it. We say a litany. We say a litany over and over again of all this darkness that's inside of us. And on Purim, we kind of play it out. <laughs> we embody it. We get to sort of play up as Haman or whoever it is we want to be. We get to embody those characters. And in both ways, what I think is wonderful is that we are rejuvenated and cleansed through it. The acknowledgement is not a self-flagellation, right? It's not depressing. It's just the opposite. Both of them are days of joy. 
Right? And it's particularly interesting, I think, when we think about Yom Kippur. Our other fast days are days of sadness. But Yom Kippur is not a day of sadness. Right? You feel in shul, there's, there's majesty, there's kavod, right? But there's not sadness. There's sort of greatness, right? There's greatness in Yom Kippur. And there's that joy of majesty, that joy of release. And so in Purim, we sort of do it not through majesty, but through foolishness, right? We sort of do the other opposite, we not fochum, but that willingness to just be as foolish as we can be, everything is able to come out. I mentioned, I think, before, a wonderful practice of Avram Kalisker and his chassidim, who were known to do somersaults. They would just do somersaults, right? And it seems to be that the idea is that, you know, spiritual practice is very embarrassing. When we do it, it, it requires a kind of honesty, which can be embarrassing, a kind of authenticity, which can be embarrassing, sometimes kinds of actions, which can be embarrassing, like maybe you're throwing your hands up in prayer, or you're crying when you're davening, or whatever it is you're doing. And if, like, you walk around the street and you do somersaults in front of people, you already look like such an idiot, you've sort of gotten over the embarrassment thing, right? It's like you already let everybody down, nothing to worry about anymore, <laughs> Now you're wide open, you can do anything you need to, right? You already look like an idiot. And that's, again, the power of Purim. I think, you know, so often our ego is so worried about how we look and how we behave. Right? So worried about it. Are we behaving properly? Are we looking properly? Are we saying the right thing? Are we being appropriate? And Purim is a day where you don't have to be appropriate, right? You're invited to be inappropriate, right? You can say ridiculous things, there's a perma spiel, you can wear ridiculous things, you can drink, you can do whatever, right? All the things that are inappropriate, all of a sudden you're invited to do them on Purim. You're invited to open yourself in a different way. And so what we're talking about is really a kind of radical acceptance. It's an acceptance of every element of who we are, every element of who we are, and a refusal to accept the limits that society and others want to impose on us. Right? Purim is that time when we say, no boundaries, na fochu. I don't know the difference between aror haman and baruch mordechai. I don't know the difference between good and evil, even for a moment, right? It's interesting, Tara Brach, one of my teachers said, we so easily believe limiting stories about ourselves and forget that our very nature is aware and loving. What limiting stories about yourself have you believed? What have you believed that you can't do or can't be or can't achieve at this moment or can't open to or isn't right for you? or isn't permissible to you in some way. It could be anything. It could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be a way of acting in the world, it could be dancing, it could be singing, it could be climbing a mountain, it could be stopping and doing nothing, right? What is it that we feel isn't permitted to ourselves? What are the ways that we believe we are limited? And why have we bought that story? And so in Purim, we throw out the stories. We throw out the boundaries and limitations which we're normally caught in. 
We throw out the ways that other people see us. All the limitations, all the roles that we have. It's like these roles start so early, right? Start so young. What we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to be. Just think of two examples which came to my mind right now. So our first child is a girl and our second child is a boy. And um, he's starting to get a little bit bigger and, you know, the only clothes we have lying around really are girls' clothes. <laughs> which I feel totally fine with. Like, he's five months old. What does he or anybody else care? You know what I mean? He's wearing pink. <laughs> what possible difference could it make? What difference should it make anyway? But certainly to a five-month-old, right? What difference could it make? But, right, but disapproval arises <laughs> from those outside. If you want to dress your baby boy, even your five-month baby boy, you know, five-month-year-old baby boy in pink. Or just reflecting, Debbie was reflecting this to me. Um, her daughters were with some relatives, and they were like, oh, she was such a good girl, you know. And then they was like, what do, you, what do you mean she was a good girl? Which is great, she's a good girl. Basically, what they meant by being a good girl was she did her own thing and didn't bother them, right? <laughs> Which is like, it's fair enough, totally understandable. But it's like, what's that story that they're receiving already about what it is to be good, about what it is to behave, about what it is to fit in, about what it is to make things smooth for people, you know? Just interesting to sort of reflect on what those stories are that we're receiving, that we all receive as children, that we're telling to children. And not, it's not about people being monsters or terrible, right? It's also about reasonable things. Like you come home, you have a billion things to do. Of course you want your kid to be able to play by themselves for a while and you'll be able to do other things. Totally reasonable. But just to reflect on what those stories are, right? How are we being told that we need to fit in to what's happening around us? And that the truth of this practice, Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, this practice is not about being good little boys and girls. You know, if you want to fit in and be a good boy and girl, then it's going to be hard to do, hard to do that with this practice. Because this in practice encourages us to be true, to actually be true. And sometimes being true is not being a good little boy and girl. Right? Sometimes it's rocking the boat. Sometimes it's making waves. Sometimes it's doing what people don't expect and don't want. And it's an important and crucial distinction, right? Our job is not to do what people expect from us. Our job is not to fulfill other people's expectations. Our job is to be compassionate, right? But that's a totally different thing. There may be some overlap of those two things sometimes, right? And that's fine, but they're not the same thing. Sometimes compassion, in fact, demands exactly the opposite, to not do what is expected. There's a kind of fierceness and bravery, which is part of true compassion, right? Being willing to really do what's right and loving and beneficial at that moment, not what's expected of you, not what isn't going to bring disapproval down on you. And the question is, and the question of this wildness and openness is how can we do that from a place not of anger and resistance, 
but a place of open-heartedness and exploration and bravery. I'm opening up my chest and opening up my heart. There's a lot of vulnerability here. I'm doing what I think is right. I don't hate you. <laughs> I don't think you're the enemy, but I think this has to stop or this is not right or this person has to be helped right now in some way, which isn't happening, right? And it's really demanding, or it's really demanding. And it's very hard to do. Because when we do it right, when we do it right, it's beautiful because it's liberating. It's like there's a sense of doing what is right. There's the liberation of openness. And there's the openness of not taking it personally. And when we do it wrong, which we often do, that's okay, right? We take it personally, and then we're full of anger, hatred, fear, disgust, right? All those pieces, rage. Or we take it personally, and it's too scary, too overwhelming, too much, and so we hide. We ignore, we become passive, we become hopeless become despairing. And it's hard not to do those two. Say in my experience, it's hard not to do those two. It's hard not to feel attached or averse, basically, right? It's hard not to fall into it in one of these two ways. But one way we can know, it's a great test, just ask yourself, does this hurt? Right? Does this hurt? Does this feel bad? <laughs> the way I'm responding right now? So then you know, oh, not the wisest way to respond. You may not be able to change it at that moment, but it's just this little bell which lets you chew it. It's like, oh, anger, burning, rage, furious, feeling under attack. Okay, maybe not the most skillful way of dealing with this, right? <laughs> And then how do you search out a way which allows you to still be true to your truth but to shift the perspective? I think I mentioned a while ago some of this conflict we were having on the kibbutz that I was very upset about. And I could see myself getting caught in this place of anger. You know, furious, upset, hurt, violating everything I believed in, right? But really caught in it and not being able to act in the most effective way. And talking with one of my teachers and just asking me, just that much of a shift. What is love calling for? Right? Instead of what is anger, what is love calling for? And I was just with that, like, oh, that falling into that place of, oh, what is love asking for? What is love calling for? It was totally different. It didn't actually change my opinion at all, right? <laughs> I was still completely committed to the same opinion I'd been committed to before and still kept working to try and champion that opinion in the kibbutz, right? But it totally changed the way I worked for it. It totally changed my ability to communicate with other people about it, to both listen to them and therefore to enable them to listen to me, right? And it felt much better, right? It just felt much better to be working from that perspective of love rather than the perspective of rage and of anger. So this, I think, is the work of Purim. It's the work that we're going to continue to explore. 
There's deep work there of wildness, of bravery, of opening to the chaos, the craziness, and the beauty of that chaos and craziness, which is inside of us. So I'm going to pause there for today. Um, and as usual, open up, uh, we have a little less time today, but open up to some questions, thoughts, sharing, anything people would like to say or share or ask. I'm not sure if I can articulate it quite right, but like, I mean, a lot of the, you know, there is this kind of idea, something, I mean, hmm, this whole thing of expectation, you know, and people's expectations of us. And for myself, I mean, I find that's very often sort of my, unfortunately, very often my sort of, you know, sort of test people. Or question, you know, what is expected of me? What does this person want? What is that? Even without realizing it, I've slowly become more conscious of how much that's in my head of what they want, what they need, what they expect, and also realizing that what they expect isn't necessarily what they need, first of all. Um, and even if they don't get what they need, they might get somewhere else, which is also helpful to remember. But still, things run, like, I feel like it almost sort of keeps me in check, so to speak, you know, to make sure that I'm not. You know, to make sure that you know, I'm not always going to be open and compassionate. I might, just, I might be in a rush, usually in a rush, somewhere. And so, keeping in mind people's expectations, that kind of helps me to make sure that I'll be relatively moral and fair in the things that I do. And sometimes I lose myself, and usually I don't, though. So the question is, is like, I don't know. I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I'd say I wonder about that a bit, uh -huh. in the sense of. You really need other people's expectations to, to keep you in line to do the right thing. Really, if you didn't just check in inside, you wouldn't know what the right thing was to do. I'm not sure that, I don't think that's true. I'd say my own experience. Now, we, we, we might need to be aware of people's expectations sometimes, which is a totally wise thing to be aware of. And I'm saying don't be aware of what people's expectations are. Because you might need to respond to that in a certain way. You might right. sort of be said, need to say to somebody, I'm not about to meet your expectations, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this instead. So it's wise if you're going to do something like that to be able to communicate that in a clear way and acknowledge that somebody might expect something and you're going to do something else. Right. Or it might also be wise to be like, I know they expect this. And in this situation, for whatever reason, it's going to make sense to give them what they expect. That's fine too. It's not about like, Dafka don't fulfill people's expectations, right? <laughs> but I think the fact of people's expectations is, it's just a fact out there. It's just a fact out there, which can then help us figure out in any given situation, what's the wisest way to respond. Given all the factors we know, like their expectations, or this person gets angry very easily, or whatever the factors are, wise to be aware of factors and be able to respond as clearly as we can to the people in front of us. But I don't think the expectations themselves are the guide. Right. I don't think that's true. I think the guide's in here. And if we really touch in here, then we'll sort of see. Oh, yeah. Yes, that makes sense. No, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's hard to do. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it's hard to do, of course, when we're in a rush. Mm -hmm. Right? So rushing is, is tough to be present in rushing. <laughs> so we need to stop. You know, okay. it's like, how do we stop for a second right. and just be like, okay, 
I'm rushing. If I take 30 seconds now, is it really going to make a difference? No. But in 30 seconds, you can actually check in. You know, in 30 seconds, you can just be like, stop, breathe, what feels right, what feels true. So I suggest, experiment with it. I wanted to, I want to bring in sex and crushes and lust in the conversation. It feels yeah. really awkward for them and yes. and letting wild crushes out. Um, and specifically your question that makes, the question makes so much sense to me, what is love calling for me to do? I feel like in my own experience, the answer to that question has been pretty clear in many areas but not around attraction mm-hmm. to other people because yeah. often there's this push and pull between the love that I, or the attraction that I'm feeling towards someone else and the love that I feel to myself to be protective because my default is to wear my heart on my sleeve entirely. And I'm really navigating that this year mm. in a really live, hard way. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, as you already pointed out, that love and lust or attraction are not the same thing. Right. right? So, important not to get confused. Nothing wrong with lust and attraction. Great things, right? right? But don't take it, just don't confuse them for love, right? Just to be clear about it. So, what is love calling you to do, compassion is calling you to do, is not necessarily the same thing that attraction is calling you to do. The second part, you know, what I'm hearing you say, is I think a question in particular that you may be dealing with in that in that. Um, context, but it's a general question of sort of vulnerability, yeah. right? What, when is it appropriate to be vulnerable? When is it not appropriate to be vulnerable? And I'd say, the way I sort of generally answer this, and answer for myself, there's there's an ultimate response, and there's a um, whatever the opposite of ultimate is, uh, relative or preliminary, or whatever it is, response, right? The ultimate response is. Being, it's fine. <laughs> vulnerability is always best. Right? If we can be totally open and present with the vulnerability, always best. That's the ultimate response. But if we can be totally open and present with the vulnerability, then it's always best. Right? That's a big if. Right? Big IF. Big if. Right? <laughs> so the provisional response is not always to be open. Right? That's not always the wisest response. And so it, it takes a kind of checking out and it takes knowing your personality. Yeah. So me, for instance, there are more or less, I think, one of my teachers once taught me about this and I've seen this, I think is more or less true, more or less two personalities in this regard. Mm-hmm. There's me, right, which is the personality of, I will never open more than is safe. You know, it's like I have to have sort of mindfulness and safety present to allow the opening of vulnerability to happen. It's never happened. I've never in my life open and felt like I shouldn't have been vulnerable in that situation. Never happened to me, right? (laughs) So like, because my challenge is really the opening, the opening, the opening. That's my challenge, right? Other people, and this is, my teacher said she was an example of that. She was like, I'm like wide open, (laughs) totally open, you know? So the question is, how do I work to bring in the mindfulness, the, the clarity, the groundedness, the base, you know? So she said, like, you know, when she left her first retreat, she spent, like, four hours crying in her car, right? I left my first retreat, I was like, okay. <laughs> I was basically, okay, like, that's just the way I am, right? <laughs> they talk about these big transitions, I know it's true for some people, it's not true for me, all right? <laughs> Lots of retreats, 
it's never been like, well, you see things differently. It's not like, it's nothing, but it's never like, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. Right? It doesn't happen to me in that way. So, so there's not like an answer. The answer is to really investigate how, how much openness can I hold in this situation? And the only thing I'd sort of suggest there is being clear about it. Because then, in my experience, not with this, but in certain other kinds of situations, like experiencing certain parts of myself, there's a big difference from just closing up automatically and being shut and the pain of it and saying, wow, I see this. I see it's a little too scary or maybe dangerous for me to open in a certain way. I'm going to clearly choose not to do that, but not from this sense of fear or anger or whatever. There's a lot more openness there. It's like, I'm just going to clearly choose for now not to do that. I give myself a little time. And then maybe in two weeks, I'll be ready to do that. You know, there isn't that sort of violence in it which feels painful in the same way. So if, if we can bring a little bit of that clarity, I think it helps. Your parents' voice in your head. Absolutely, of course, right? Of course. I mean, the most pernicious way in which that happens, the way, and the way in which we least recognize it most of the time, is that we just complete inter- completely internalize those messages, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, first of all, as I, you may use a great word there, comfort. Not about being comfortable. Right? right? <laughs> practice is not about being comfortable. As anybody who's practiced for a little while can no doubt tell you, right? Because it's not that comfortable to practice, very often. Right? Not comfortable. Not about being comfortable. And so that's why we investigate. That's where the mindfulness comes in. It's like, feel like I want to do this. Is that true? We just ask, sort of, is that true? And we feel into it, not in an intellectual way. Like, you can feel it. You just start to explore and feel like, is my body telling me that's true? Right? Is my body telling me that that's true? And in my experience, you can feel. It's like your body would be like, eh, right? <laughs> no, actually, something's not quite right there. It's like, oh, okay, good to know, right? So you just keep feeling, you keep softening into deepening, opening, until you're at the place that it feels like, oh yeah, that's true. That's true. And of course, you can't always do that every time and every moment. And so we act provisionally. We do the best we can. We mess up. It's okay, right? <laughs> but just to have that intention of how much can I really have the intention each time, can I check into what's true? Can I see what's true? Not what's being called from, from outside or the outside that's inside, <laughs> right? But what's genuinely true underneath there. And it's you know, just to be clear, we're talking about a lot of work and years of work, right? It doesn't, things don't just change. I mean, some things change like that. You have moments which open, and then you have work of, I'll mention one thing just as we end. You know, I remember two to three years, no, a major thing in my life, but two to three years of like serious, intensive work on not feeling 
um, bound by the expectations of people who have like some kind of authority over me, like teachers, parents, bosses, right? Felt that very strongly, felt it internally, really clearly working on it and then doing things about it, like having meetings with people and preparing myself and not fulfilling their expectations, right? <laughs> or challenging them in some way. Scary, liberating, you know, quite amazing. But so, right, so it takes your work. You discover those parts of yourself, you see them, and you have to start to think, both in terms of the mindfulness and like, okay, what strategies can I do to sort of push myself a little bit in this way, to let this open, to step over the boundary and see like the sky did not fall. I was not reduced to a puddle of whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually, it was okay. It was okay. I didn't meet the expectations. I told them why I thought the expectations was wrong. We had a conversation about it. It was okay, right? So wherever those places are for you, that's part of the process of investigation we go through. You start to see those patterns and you see them in your daily life and then you learn how to respond to them. I have to stop here, sorry, I have to run. Um, wonderful seeing you all.